With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Have you ever had great mentorship? Is there somebody or some resource that's been a really great source of wisdom and guidance for you? Yeah, in every area of life, even in chess, learning chess, the first thing I would do is I would find an instructor and I would take lessons. I would learn from the best in every mm. field that I was ever interested in. That's who's the best and how can I learn from them? That's the first thing I do. So you're turning 50 next year? Yeah, next year in January, I'm turning 50. I don't feel 50. What do you feel? You feel like 35, 25? I remember when I was 24, I played basketball with some friends of mine. And after like three minutes, I was so tired. I was throwing up. And now I could probably handle four or five minutes. So I feel pretty <laughs> young in general. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Remember what they say, it's the journey and not the destination. While HelloFresh is both the journey and the destination because the food has to be good or else what's the point? HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. For $30 off on your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat. Simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. FreshBooks, if you're in New York City, just call me up. Let's have dinner. I really want to thank you guys. If you're a small business owner struggling to get a handle on your taxes, FreshBooks is here to help. FreshBooks is a ridiculously simple cloud accounting software that will help you cruise through tax season. It keeps all your cash flow details in one place so you know exactly what your income is. And their mobile app allows you to take pictures of your receipts and organizes them for later, which makes claiming expenses a total breeze. To get started with a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com forward slash James and enter the code James in the how did you hear about us section. So I have Farnoosh Tarabi on. You're going to interview me. Yes. Welcome, Farnoosh. Thank you for having me. We've been working together for, I feel like it's a been decade. About, I did the math last night. A decade? I feel like even longer, like 2004? No. 
<laughs> when did you get it? Thestreet.com. I got it was, there in two thousand. I got the there in two thousand six. So okay, so we were working since then. Right. So so we were doing videos every day together, mm-hmm. like on the street. We were doing podcasts and videos before it was a thing. Right. Uh, then you you wrote a book. You left thestreet.com. What was your first book? You're So Money. You're So Money. And then you did a TV show for CNBC. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the TV show? Follow the Leader. And you you followed Gary Vaynerchuk. I followed uh, John Paul DeJoria, Tracy Anderson, um, the Warby Parker co-founders. It was a blast. And now, you know, it was a great learning experience for me. And in many ways, it was, I feel like, where my podcast had taken me. So I also have a podcast and I'm just trying to basically be you, James. That's like my goal. I know. I think you've, you, <laughs> I, you've surpassed. Like I haven't had a TV show. Your podcast gets millions you and will. millions of billions of downloads. It's all about personal finance, money, but you must have like really beefed up your interview skills doing the TV show because that's it was know, tough. stuff. It was, you know, literally following around these magnates for 48 hours and trying to you know, engage with them. You know, they have to trust you too. You know, they're kind of like, who is this random woman who's coming into my workspace, my home, my car? I was literally following them all over town and flying in jets with them and with cameras, of course. And of course they agreed to do it. But I think the first 12 hours, you're just trying to get them to like you and trust you. So the first you. 12 hours, that's hard work. Yeah, because like spending 12 hours and then interviewing <laughs> and then following them around. Yeah, and getting them to be honest with you and not feel like, not and forget that the cameras are there. You know, that's that's part of my job. How many cameras were there? Uh, two, um, plus uh, producers, me, and, um, you know, it was it was overwhelming for them. I don't think that for some I think well for Gary he probably is, was used to it but even with for Gary you know I I I got to see a side of him that I don't think most people see where we would, would stop rolling we would we would go and like have a little powwow and he'd go was that okay was that okay guys you, you know he was really concerned about making sure that we were getting what we wanted and pleasing us but if you do 30 hours of video and you're only taking like a 20 22 minutes 22 minutes yeah so <laughs> It's easy to to just find within thirty hours. You could basically fo- follow anyone for thirty hours to get a twenty two minute show out of it. I would think. But you know what? It's not that easy. This is about you. What are we doing? <laughs> All right. So you're gonna interview me. I'm so glad you you yes. come on the show. Just like you used to interview me ten years ago. I know. I came prepared. Excellent. I came prepared. I mean, I know a lot about you, and I think people listening to this show regularly are huge James Altucher fans. Chances are they've read everything that you've written. They've read your website. They've Googled you. And you know when you Google you, what what comes up? Like I Googled James Altucher and then the next word was guess. I, I don't know. Podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, it's so funny how, you know, here I've written for, I've written 18 books. I've written, I'm not kidding. I've probably written about 2,500 articles since 2010 and probably since 2002, maybe close to 10,000 articles. But podcast, the the podcast world is just blowing up. This is where attention spans are, which is great because I think there's a lot of valuable content here. And I think a lot of writing now, not necessarily, I I hope to not my writing, but I think writing in general is a lot of kind of just rehash concepts. Like I see a lot, so many business authors just kind of exchanging and rewording ideas and, and rehashing their books and so on. Like I, I think that whole genre is sort of dying. Well, that's a good que- that's a good point because actually I reached out to some of your listeners and my listeners knowing that I was going to come on here and ask them about 
what they wanted to ask you. And I'll jump ahead because that brings to a question that somebody had, which was that, what do you think about all of these kind of quote unquote business and entrepreneurship gurus that are popping up everywhere? And on the one hand, I appreciate that there's this um, appreciation for entrepreneurship and leadership and we're talking about it in like a very empowering way and you can too and, you know, but who do you trust, right? There's so many people. Who's a charlatan? Who's the real deal? How do you well, how do you decipher? Well, a couple of things. Anytime you're studying entrepreneurship, you're not doing entrepreneurship. So if you really want to make, the point of entrepreneurship is not to say I'm an entrepreneur. The point is to provide a service to somebody that's useful so you can make a lot of money. Like, let's just be blunt. You want to make more money than you would make doing other things. So that's why you're going to be an entrepreneur. And also, hopefully, you're doing something you love and providing a service people value. So the first thing is trying to make more money? Uh, I mean, no, the, the money is a side effect. But for, the first thing is you believe in some something that people need. So my very first business was in the mid-90s. Corporations didn't have websites. I felt corporations would eventually need websites. So I made a business. And I there was like maybe a handful of people who knew how to make a website back then. So I started a business making websites for entertainment companies. And I would it was an easy pitch for me. All of your competitors are going to be doing it. Your People are going to start viewing all of your content on the internet as well as on TV or mm-hmm. record stores or bookstores or whatever. So let me make your website and we charge X. And then there would be a negotiation and hopefully I would do it for cheaper than X. And so I provided a service I felt they needed. I charged money that I thought I would make a profit on. And then the final side effect is I made money. So then I could hire more people and pitch more clients and keep growing. You So it was a great idea. Why would they ultimately trust you though? So what was your pitch as far as why hire James? So that's a great question because just seeing me like I was like this dirt bag. That Did you have the hair head. back then too? Yeah, or? yeah. I, I was, and I had like just the. I had no money, so I had like no. I, I was just wearing like t-shirt, you know, whatever, and just coming. I looked like a computer guy, so I think that's why they <laughs> trusted me a little bit. But also, I kind of had a um, all of these ideas of what they could do for their website. Like you could have games on your website. You could have video clips. You could you could do all your marketing. You could offer contests. You could, uh, and I would always come up with ideas for each pitch. But also, I very important, I always over-promised so for every client. So they would say, we want to do this. And I'm like, well, why don't you do this plus this unbelievable thing that I didn't even know was technically possible? And, <laughs> and I would you would just, deliver. And, and yeah, and then the key for over-promising is to over-deliver. So not only would I deliver what I promised, but then I would over-deliver. Because I would usually, nobody knew how to price these things back then. So I would charge so much that... It was easy for me to find ways to over deliver. Like mm-hmm. I always made sure they would be like amazed with whatever I delivered, so that they would hire me for the next project. And then word of mouth would spread, and other people would hire. Like we heard about you from this guy, and then we'd we'd hire my company for this. So again, the side effect of all of this is that I made money, and then ultimately, when the internet became like this boom, I was able to sell the company. But I didn't want. So maybe I made a mistake. I didn't once study entrepreneurship at all. I knew zero other entrepreneurs. I had no business savvy. I had no management expertise. I knew how to sell pretty well because I I 
would say, yeah, I mean, I would use the basic techniques. Like, oh, I did the websites for X, Y, and Z. You've seen those. They're great. Uh, and then I would overpromise and overdeliver. And I would address objections like, oh, you know, we're just, you, you think this is expensive, but we're just a tiny part of your marketing budget. And pretty mm -hmm. soon billions of people will be on the internet. So, you know, these are kind of the basic selling techniques that I sort of, now I know that a lot of people have written about these things. I know they were good selling techniques, but then I just was instinct, um, maybe mostly because I believed in the vision. And, and uh, you know, I, I think if I had read books about management or business or whatever, maybe I would have learned a little bit more. But I think my main mistake was I just wanted to make a profit and other companies were not making profits and they were focused on raising money and scaling the business and then doing an IPO and making billions of dollars. I didn't know anything about that. I just knew I need to sell something for more than it's worth mm -hmm. and, or for more than it took me to make it and make a profit and hire more employees for as cheap as possible and then sell more stuff. Do you regret not having built that business that, like in that traditional way of like getting investors and hiring people and... Because that would have led you down a whole different path. Yeah, well then, I mean, look, some of my competitors at the exact same time went public and were worth billions of dollars for at least a short amount of time. Like there was a company, Razorfish, that was my main competitor. They went public and at one point they were worth $2 billion and the founders were worth $200 million each. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened if they sold any of their stock. I mean, eventually Razorfish- You should get them on this podcast and- Talk about what happened next. Yeah, I should. It's Craig Kanarek and Jeff Dodges, who are friends of mine now. But uh, you know, and they 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 did okay, I guess. But uh, again, they they had the business savvy that I they took investment from Omnicom, the big ad agency, early on. People were calling me up about investing all the time, and I said, "No, we don't need any money. We're profitable." And I just didn't have any sense that that's how that business didn't yeah. always work that way, particularly in a boom situation. I should have recognized we're in a boom. I could take advantage of that by raising money and doing something more financially innovative. I didn't know anything about financial innovation. I just threw everything into making profits and being a good business and providing a good service, just traditional business. So maybe if I knew a little bit more, I would have been a little bit more successful that we sold for you know a lot of money, but not as much money as some well, of my competitors. There's something to be said about there are entrepreneurs out there that are primarily visionary and then there are those that are really business savvy. So the vision, I think you're a visionary. And you're business savvy too, but you have an ability to see things that others do not and to go after it. Well, I remember there was one competitor of mine. Their, their company was called Rare Medium. And I knew all the competitors. We would kind of get together socially. There was only like a handful of us. They were four guys like me, just kind of like computer guys making web games on websites. And... They brought someone in who was an ex-investment banker. They made him the CEO. He raised like $100 million. He merged their company into a publicly traded company that was an air conditioning company. They shut down the air conditioning business. Now they were an internet business. They went from being a $40 million valuation on the stock market to like $2 billion. And this guy made the CEO, I don't know how the other guys did, but the CEO made like $400 million. And- Again, that's the difference between they were good, they were building a good solid business, but then they combined it with somebody who was financially savvy at mm -hmm. that time, and it really, you know, put on steroids the amount of money they made. And again, I didn't know anything about that. Now I think twenty years later, I'm more sophisticated in that way. It's not a primary interest of mine, but 
I would I would do it differently now. And I and and but I don't see any business guru. There, there's no business guru that would have taught that. It's only no. experience. Like you you have to you have to do things. You have to sell to get better at, at salesmanship. You have to make things to get better at making things. You have to um make management mistakes to get better at management. So you have to actually it's it's great to have ideas because that's what you pitch the clients and that's how you win business and you have to be creative and and inspire people and so on. But then you have to like just get down into the mud and yeah. do things. Maybe tops read one business book from a real expert, but then that's it. Don't don't do anything else. Just just start doing stuff. So I have a lot of questions and just to tease your listeners that they keep listening. And I mean, why wouldn't you keep listening? But just so you have something to look forward to, what I'm going to ask James is everything from, you know, uh, your minimalist lifestyle right now and how that's going. I want to talk about um, your dating life. I want to talk about uh, some projects that you might have coming up on the horizon. I want to talk about what you have for breakfast in the morning. I was going to bring you an iced coffee, but then I was like, I'm not sure James drinks caffeine. All good questions. <laughs> um, but let's start just because I want to I want to put a nice bow on this little back and forth we're having about innovation and entrepreneurship. So, do you watch Silicon Valley? Yeah, I watch. Uh, uh, I love Silicon Valley, and and Silicon Valley is a great example of something that I believe strongly in. So, I love comedy and television in general, and. There's a lot you can learn from the TV show Silicon Valley. A, I think it's not 100% realistic, but it's sarcastically realistic about what does happen in Silicon Valley. <laughs> like, I don't like to actually go to San Francisco because everyone is so obsessed with, oh, what round did you invest Ugh, in? It's you so know, true. Dropbox or Uber or whatever. And, and you're nobody if you didn't invest at like different levels of things. And, you know, there's all, it's, I feel like the, I feel like all the innovation in the country is primary, like let's say 90% of the innovation is happening in Silicon Valley and you kind of have to be at the most dynamic geographic location to be part of it. But at the same time, it's so annoying and all the people, not all because I'm friends with a lot of the people there, but many of the people are so annoying. I just hate it. And they have so much arrogance due to the fact that they stumbled upon billions of dollars of, in some cases lucky, in some cases not, of course. But uh, so recently on the show, they're looking at the main characters looking at starting like the new internet. Yeah. Right. What do you see as, because you had such foresight into knowing that the internet was basically going to be like, you're going to change all of our lives. You tried to leverage that for some of your clients. What's the next big technology or innovation that will change our lives, much like the internet has? Well, I mean, you have two things. One is uh, the internet of things which basically hooks up not just computers to the internet, but everything to the internet. So the chair you sit on will be hooked up to the internet. Like <laughs> it'll recognize it's Farnoosh. Like, oh, Farnoosh, maybe you should be eating That's differently. Yep. <laughs> maybe you should be eating differently. Maybe you should be, <laughs> we're going to take like a blood hey, sample hey, right hey, now. Hey, we're going to do a DNA check. Uh, uh, you know, just everything will start to be hooked up to the internet. And there'll be more and more, uh, uh, you know, applications for that, you know, that, you know, not just your temperature in your house, but everything from your refrigerator to your stereo. And we're already starting to, to see that, but that's one thing. And then virtual reality, it's not there yet. It's inning zero or inning negative one, but I see virtual reality where the internet was in like 1991 or 1992. Like 
right before the web was developed or right when the web was developed, nobody quite knew, is this going to be big or not? But it ended up changing the entire world. And I think the the virtual reality is still at that point where it's not realistic enough that the brain is willing to say, oh, okay, this is a fun experience. Yeah. But it's going to get there, and the uses right. are going to be phenomenal. Because the first, do you remember the first time you toiled, you tooled around with the internet? I mean, I, I think I was nine years old or ten years old, over at a friend's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who was going to MIT, who wanted to introduce to us this thing called the internet, and he had, I think, MSN or AOL was like the portal, and I was like, I don't get it. You know, great, you can. I don't even know, like, I don't understand. It just did not click. It was so not inherent to how we were used to doing things. Do you remember where you were when you first Yeah, I mean, but, but I, I first used the internet in 1986. Before, <laughs> Excuse way before, me, okay. <laughs> sorry, I, I didn't mean to, like, throw in, like... <laughs> well, only uh, a few years before I did. So, But but it was before the web, and, and I was a computer guy. Like, I was interested in computer programming, so it was really fascinating to me. Yeah. But the idea that... I could find a topic I was interested in and suddenly, and there was something called Usenet then, which was all, all these news groups, all text-based. And you could log into a news group of something you were interested in. Like, I don't know, I was interested in like the Brady Bunch or Star Wars or whatever. And you could suddenly talk to people from like Norway about things you were commonly interested in. I had never before- Chat rooms, remember those? Yeah, yeah. well, you, I had never before <laughs> spoken to somebody outside- you know, on the phone, I would speak to my friends. And normally I would just speak to people in the room I was in, uh, you know, the physical room I was in. Now I'm speaking to people from, from you know, Russia about right. things we're co- <laughs> jointly interested in. And it was like this amazing thing. And then the web started and this whole idea of hypertext. And I thought this is going to be real artistic medium. I didn't think it was going to be a commercial medium. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, it's an opportunity for storytelling, and a, diff- a three-dimensional storytelling. But then- Gradually over time, you saw, oh, this is going to be very important for commerce. And yeah, I was super excited about it. I mean, even in 1994, I was thinking, how can I help other companies make websites to put their schedules and, mm-hmm. you know, restaurants could put their menus. And, you know, for I, I lived in a college town, so college students all had access to the computer and the first web browsers, and which was called Mosaic at the time. And it'd be great to see the local restaurants and their menus, or it'd be great to go on a real estate site and see rental apartments and photos. And so I would go to real estate agencies and say, hey, can I take photos of and put them on the internet? And they're like, what? Like, what's the wow. internet? And so that business didn't, that <laughs> yeah. business idea didn't work out. But later on, a few, it was Trulia took about- Trulia and Zillow, you know, caught up to it. And- but, but look, it took about two years and then people were starting to say yes to me. Uh, for, for two years, people were saying no. I remember the first time I told HBO, the television company, mm-hmm. you need to set up a website. And my boss said, listen, just sit back down <laughs> in your cubicle. Uh, the cable guys know- what they're talking about. They've been doing cable TV forever. This academic thing, the internet is not gonna, it's just a fad. It's not gonna Wow. Hit. And so, but I'm like, no, no, no. And I would go over his head. He eventually hated me so much he stopped being my boss. I would go over his head. <laughs> and and finally the CEO of HBO bought HBO.com. It was they didn't have it. There was another medical, there was a medical supplies company called HBO in Atlanta, and they owned HBO.com. So HBO, the television company, bought HBO.com for $250,000 and 
And then I started making, then they got me oh. to start making the website for them. And Which that is, basically started my company off of that. Oh, I made HBO.com, hire me to do, you know, badboyrecords.com or americanexpress.com or whatever. And of course, I love my HBO. Yes, um, I love HBO too. Oh, and I just wanted to mention about yeah. Silicon Valley. Very important. Um, the producer is Alec Berg, who, uh, and I just love studying the history of these things. He was the producer of Curb Your Enthusiasm for many mm-hmm. years, which was Larry David's show on HBO, Silicon Valley's on HBO. And before he was the producer on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is Larry David's show, he was a writer and then producer on Seinfeld. So all of these people, to to be successful and to have all these great successful shows, he's like a guy like Alec Berg, who we barely know, but we know all his products. He surrounded himself with guys like Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David when he was a young man just writing for the show. He then stayed with them, became the producer, grew up with them, stuck stuck with Larry David, then stuck with HBO. And now he's a producer of like, and creator of one of the best shows on TV. Like that's a, a good story of success. Who's your inner circle? Uh, I mean, that's, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it changes a lot because my interests change a lot. So it depends if I'm interested in writing, I call my writer friends and they're all like, you know, good, successful writers that I want to learn from. So like, you know, on this podcast a lot has been, uh, Stephen Dubner who wrote Freakonomics, AJ Jacobs, who's written a bunch of bestsellers, Cheryl Strayed, who wrote, you know, Wild, that became a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Hugh Howey, who wrote Wool. Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. Um, so I, there's a lot of writers that I speak to and, and a lot of nonfiction writers that have come on the show. Like uh, later today, I'm interviewing Chuck Klosterman, who's written a lot of nonfiction pop culture essays that have all been bestsellers. Um, so I have a lot of writers on on the show. Um, on the business side, I don't, I don't really know, but I don't think, I think that's why I'm not a billionaire. I don't hang out with a lot of- <laughs> Have you ever had great mentorship? Is there somebody or some resource that's been a really great source of wisdom and guidance for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had, just like you probably have had, I think I've had hundreds of mentors. Like people think, oh, you need just one mentor and that person's gonna guide you. And you have to have all these you- one-on-ones and talk through things. Sometimes you just have to- be aware of who these people are that you admire and watch them. And that's mentorship in some ways. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would taking say taking a back seat in their life and right. Like I would say everybody I've had on my podcast has been a mentor because that's the great thing about a podcast, which I'm sure, you know, which is you have this chance to sit down next to somebody and ask them any question you want for like an hour and you better ask them because you're never going to see them <laughs> right. again. So I'm going to, yeah. if I have Peter Thiel or Mark Cuban on, I'm going to ask them every question I can ask. Did like, you ask I, Peter Thiel about his affiliation with Donald Trump? No, because I had Peter Thiel on over two years ago. So Ugh. it was before then. But I asked, but he's a smart guy about business. So I was able to ask him all these incredible business questions that I never would have been able to ask anyone in person. I can't call Peter Thiel up and say, hey, can you talk <laughs> to me for an hour about how to be a billionaire? Right. But on a podcast, you can you can do that. And uh, so so those are, uh, are kind of these virtual mentors. But then like you and I, we, we hung out with Jim Cramer for many years. He started thestreet.com. He started a hedge fund. He's written some great books. He's had a very successful TV show. People could criticize him all day long because he's kind of a, a, a very eccentric guy. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing he told me. He was really upset at me once. CNBC kept calling me, come on CNBC and give your commentary about the financial markets. 
And I just would not return their calls. Like I just would just blow them off. And Jim Cramer came up to me one time and he's like, you're embarrassing me. Why aren't you returning their calls? And I'm like, oh, I don't like to, I don't want to go on TV. I don't want to promote myself. It's all, it's about the business I'm doing. It's not about me. And he's like, listen, if you don't promote yourself, nobody else is going to promote you. Hmm. And so I always remember that. Like, it's very true. And you have it's to not be your like, biggest advocate. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like you should be out there like, oh, look at me. But if somebody gives you an opportunity to say a vision that you believe in and that you're right. inspired by, then you better go out and, and do it. Because and show no one up else for that gonna, vision. Yeah, yeah. Show up for that because it's important to get your unique word out. Make sure you have something unique to say so that you're not just one of those bland, you know, eight people in a box right. arguing with each other on CNBC. Make sure you're the one person saying what you're saying. But he was right. That was a good thing to say. Also, I saw how hard he worked. So like, hard. Like that guy got to work at five in the morning and I don't think he stopped working till midnight every night. And I would text him sometimes two in the morning. He would text back instantly. And every weekend... <laughs> He was yeah. preparing for a show. He would text me all day long. What about this idea? What about this idea? What about this idea? He was thinking constantly. That guy never stopped. He was worth hundreds of millions. He never stopped working. I still don't think he ever stops working. You know, and then I've had mentors like that in hedge funds, in writing, in um, writing fiction I'm very interested in right now, in comedy I'm very interested in, in TV. Uh, I mean, I pitched TV shows to HBO. I had great mentors there. In every area of life, even in chess, learning chess, the first thing I would do is I would find an instructor and I would take lessons. I would learn from the best in every field that I was ever interested in. That's who's the best and how can I learn from them? That's the first thing I do. All right, so let's fast forward to today. We're recording this. It's June 1st. June. That's right, it's June 1st. Happy June. I can't believe, I feel like 2017 just started. (laughs) Um, my daughter slept 10 hours last night, so I am energized. I, I got my iced coffee. <laughs> I can't believe you have a daughter. And a son. And you have two daughters. Wait, wait. When we were first doing videos, were you married? Were no, you- I was single and uh, there was no Tinder back then. So I was hopelessly dating. And not that Tinder's the answer for everything. But you know, it's like, I just didn't, I didn't know where to begin with being in New York. And I was working so hard. I ended up marrying a guy I went to college with. So you never know who's sitting next to you and how that is going to transpire in 10 years. You I know? remember at one point I was in between marriages and I was dating and I called you up for a recipe because I wanted to yes, cook for yes. a girl I was dating. Yep. And I gave and you, you a really you good gave one. Me this great recipe. And I'm in, <laughs> I was in the grocery store and like I was buying all the things you were saying it was like, salmon. I remember. Yeah, it was, it was some sa- kind it was, of salmon thing. It was and American- I would have to wrap it in foil. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, honey mustard. I think it was uh, garlic and um, some herbs and salt and pepper and very like maybe some lemon. Uh, whatever. Did it, did it? Was it a good? Oh date? my god! It was. It was. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the <laughs> date was that good, but and that relationship was a disaster. But uh, that, I think it was a fellow colleague. Yes. Yeah. That meal though was excellent. I still it, make it. And that's probably the last time I've ever cooked. Well, so it was like Yeah, 10 so years what ago. do you so I want to ask you oh, I haven't gotten to my long list of questions yet cuz you're just so good. I have to everything you say makes me think of another question, but um I did want to ask you about your diet. Like what do you eat these days? Do you are there any things that you're not eating? I know you're into bulletproof coffee now, right? Yeah, I mean, uh um I mean, and Dave Asprey's been on my podcast I think like 3 times. Uh, and, and so bulletproof coffee is, um, let's just say at a very basic level, it's, it's, it's coffee 
with uh, some extra carbs, uh, not carbs, some extra calories and fat and protein in it. And uh, ye butter, yeah, yeah, butter and coconut, kind of a, a version ye? of coconut oil. Yeah, um, he calls it brain octane oil, but it's like kind of a. Uh, He's franchising that. It's, yeah, it's it's gonna be. They're gonna be little coffee shops all over. Oh sprouting. yeah, I mean he's raised a ton of money now. I mean I knew him before he was starting Bulletproof, and I remember I called him one time and I said, "Oh, I just tried your idea for Bulletproof coffee," and I wrote. 40,000 words on a book this weekend. <laughs> like it put me like, it was like, it was like coffee on steroids. But I do have to say when you throw in that many calories into the coffee, I was feeling a little oh. bit nauseous afterwards. And the idea is you feel so full. You doesn't, you don't need food until like two in the afternoon. And so you lose weight by having this bulletproof coffee. Plus you get a lot of energy, but I don't do that anymore. So, um, did you have breakfast? Yeah, you're drinking Poland spring water. Is, yeah, I, so I, I have, uh, so okay, I, I wake up, I have coffee, I read for a couple of hours, I write for a couple of hours, then I'll eat a breakfast, usually with some protein in it. But like, uh, I tend to be uh, pescatarian, so fish and vegetables, but, uh, uh, and then no red meat or chicken or anything like that. And I tend to do two meals a day and no snacks. And the reason is... Do you stop eating at a certain point? Yeah, I try to not eat past like 5 or 6 Wow. PM because you want to have time before... You don't want to go to sleep on like yeah. a full stomach. It's true. You'll lose a lot of weight that way. Yeah, and if you, you if you have time to digest the food before you go to sleep, and then, and then by the way, then you... Uh, Wake up at like five you or six, calories. and then you you're then I work a little bit on the coffee, and then I don't eat again until ten or eleven. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's like this intermittent fasting that you do every day, so I don't eat for like sixteen hours, and that's a nice fast. It gives you time to digest uh, and metabolize the food before more food comes in, and uh, and the two meals a day. I'm not recommending it for everyone. It's just I'm older now, and if you eat like three big meals a day. It's just you're gonna gain you will weight. Get bigger, so right? and and people sort of forget that they they eat the same at 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, and your metabolism changes every decade. If you don't change the way you're eating, you're just gonna naturally get bigger, yes. and less healthy. You're, and you know all, all that extra foods related to um, inflammation throughout the body. Then you get diabetes, or there's links to dementia, or there's links to cancer, or there's links to all sorts of diseases and stomach ailments. And um, so I just I just keep it simple and, uh, you know, eat as simply as possible. And you don't cook. So where do your best restaurants in New York City? Do you have- By, by the way, the no cooking is important. So here <laughs> here's, here's what I call the Airbnb diet, which is that I never have food in the house. Because if I have oh food in the house, I'm going to, and I never go shopping. Because if, if I go shopping, I'm going to buy snacks. And if I have snacks in the house, all of those snacks are, are going to end up in my stomach. <laughs> so if I have a bag of potato chips, it's good. all of those potato chips are going to end up in my stomach. And I just picture that bag like in my <laughs> oh. stomach. And so I, the Airbnb diet is I always have no food in the house and I always order out. People say, oh, well, isn't that, aren't you eating, the foods are too rich. The answer is no. First off, World famous chefs cook for me every day, basically, and I, and del- and they have the That's food true. is delivered to me, and I don't have to clean anything up. I just throw everything back in the bag and throw it out. So it saves time incredibly. I never have to cook. I never have to clean, and I have world famous chefs putting together the best meals possible for me. Second off, 
And that's you, because you're in New York, and if you're going to be a chef in New York, you're pretty pretty good. Yeah, what you do. And, and pretty much any city or even most towns, you know, the local restaurants are going to be pretty good and, and will deliver or you could pick up food. You know, in my old town, which was 60 miles north of New York, I would order takeout and just bring the food back and I'd go to the best restaurant, order takeout, take the food back. But the other thing is, even on desserts, it's not like you can order a bag of Doritos for dessert at a restaurant. Okay, I'll have like a slice of apple pie. It's not going to be as bad for me as a bag of Doritos or a bag of popcorn or whatever. Popcorn's not so bad, but like most snacks that you buy in the in the store are bad. When I go into a grocery store, I can't help it. I like, I love all the crappy snacks. And I know, everything that's everything. in the middle. My friend who's a, uh, a chef and she, she offers some healthy advice. She's like, if you're going to go grocery shopping, stick to the perimeter of the grocery yeah, so store. So I've, I've heard that. I never do it. Like, <laughs> because the store is set up for you you can't, you know, you can't fight evolution. So we're we're designed over millions of years, essentially, to go to the middle of the store and buy all the carbs, because our brain says, "Oh, I could pick up grass and eat it all day long. The grass is all over the place. But when am I going to get a donut ever again?" Right. Like the brain is like, "Oh my God, sweets and donuts and fats and oils. I better and and." All the way up until the cashier, there's donuts right in front of you everywhere you turn. So your brain now, now your your willpower is, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're rejuvenated, that's when your willpower is at its peak level. But at night, when people tend to go shopping, you know, after work, your willpower is at its lowest level. And this is just again evolution. It's how the brain is meant to be. You can't fight it, and you shouldn't fight it. Because then that will deplete other areas of your brain. Why online shopping for food is actually helpful? Yeah, online shopping is fine. But again, that's why I just online when I need food. We 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 live right now in an access economy, so I have access right now to anything I need. If I need a car downstairs, I don't need to buy a car. I'll just call an Uber. If I need a place to live, I don't need to own a home. I'll get an Airbnb. If I need food, I don't need to buy like. 20 weeks of food as if the apocalypse is about to happen <laughs> and store it in my storage container. I'll just order a uh, delivery from, even, you could even order a meal delivered from Whole Foods or from the grocery store in most cases, mm-hmm. in most towns around the country. So we live in an access economy. You might as well take use of it. It's healthier and uh, uh, you could live longer and happier. Like I don't, I don't get sick. I don't have colds because I just, you moderate everything and you food sleep, is medicine. Sleep. You have more time, so I sleep eight or nine hours, and uh, and it's great. I get rejuvenated. I'm creative in the morning. I use the morning to as my maker hours. That's where I I create and make things, and then I use the afternoon as my management hours. That's when I do admin and respond to emails, and um, I manage various businesses. That's when I manage my businesses, and then at night I have fun. So I'll play and have fun and enjoy life. And what's fun for you? Uh, I tonight I'm gonna do stand up comedy on stage. So I want to learn a new skill. I have a club that I go to. Uh, it's a full lineup of professional comedians. Have you ever bombed? Have you been watching the show on HBO about crashing? Crashing. Yeah. <laughs> Are I've, you that guy right now? Uh, I, I I'd like to think I'm a little better than that guy. <laughs> where he's starting. I mean, Pete Holmes yeah. is a, a famous comedian now, but he's pretending to be like a kind of up and coming comedian. But I do pretty well, but I have bombed. And because when you do it long enough, you're gonna you're gonna bomb occasionally. You have to. Yeah. And also you have crowds of you don't know who the crowd is and it's different from public speaking. Like 
public speaking is 10 times harder than speaking, say. And then stand-up comedy is about 10 times harder than public speaking. So you and I are good public speakers. We've been doing it for 10, 20 years. Uh, but then I can't believe how much harder stand-up comedy is. Because it's about timing, you know, and it's re reacting to the room. When you're up in a podium giving a speech, you don't really have to react to the room. You just do your thing and get, you know. You right, and the, and the topic is is a gimmick almost. Okay, right. it's Farnoosh talking about finance. So it you, is you, what it is. It's you can fall back on the topic, but there's no topic in stand-up comedy, and it's people who don't know you, and they, they're, they're there not to help you. They just want you to make them laugh, and and it's different. You can You can tell stories in public speaking that make people laugh, but comedy is different than storytelling. You have to have like a punchline and all these other things going on. And it scares the heck out of me. So I wanted to get better at it. And I'll tell you, since I've gotten better at it, my public speaking has gotten better. Mm. Like the last time you and I spoke on stage was about a month ago. I had already done uh, stand-up comedy for about a month at that point. And I really felt just much more kind of control over my public speaking. Like the mic went out halfway through my talk and no problem. I right. kind of went into the audience <laughs> and just ripped it up. Also, you were the last to speak. So that's hard, right? Because it's the end of the night. Everyone's eaten. They're a little tired. And, you know, so there's more pressure to try to go out with a bang. Yeah, which I which I felt which like Which you I, did. Yeah. You totally did. Yeah. And <laughs> did so a total mic drop. I feel like if I hadn't been doing stand-up, I would have had a harder time. So I'm, I just, in general, so play for me is learning a new skill mm. or playing a game. I'll play poker with friends or chess or we'll go bowling or play ping pong. I have ping pong lessons scheduled for Monday with a world champion ping pong player. And then I'm going to do lessons with him a couple times and then have him on the show like he grew up in the ghetto. Well, there's a video a series for you called James Having Fun. Well, I, I was thinking of an idea called James Does Stuff. James and, Does uh, Stuff. Where I'll do like weird stuff. You know, like a friend of mine last night wrote me and said, hey, you want to go to Haiti? And I said, why? And he said, well, I'm trying to um, convince the president to sell his UN vote for like a billion dollars. <laughs> and I'm like, Sure. And he says, but the key is to have fun. And I'm like, all right, my bags are packed. Just tell me when. And I, I forget what country named, to be honest. He named like five Caribbean countries. And so he's finding the one that will actually invite him. And But I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm in. Bags are packed. I'm yeah. in. So you're turning 50 next year? Yeah, next year in January, I'm turning 50. I don't feel 50. But what do you I'm feel? You it. feel like 35, 25? I remember when, when I was 24, I played basketball with some friends of mine. And after like three minutes, I was so tired. I was throwing up. And now I could probably handle four or five minutes. So I feel like pretty young <laughs> in general. The time. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to write your autobiography, and I feel like you already have. Yeah, I feel like I do you it already, every day. You do it every day. <laughs> so what would the book be called? And what title would you give to the chapter about the life you're living today? Choose yourself. <laughs> no, you can't say that. I can't say that. No, you can't promote your books and your answer. Okay, <laughs> and then I will. Then I will call it James Does Stuff because I feel like I'm always impressed with people like um, who who like I once asked Mark Cuban, "What did you really want to be when you grew up?" And he said, "No, no, no I just wanted to be rich." And so he like started a bar. He made money at that. He started a software business. He made twenty million at that. He started a hedge fund. He made another fifty million at that. He started broadcast.com. Made two billion. He bought the Mavs. He's and he worth seems to be billion. a nice guy. Yeah, he's a you nice guy. You think someone who talks like that is an asshole? No, no, he's a great guy. And um, but he was very focused from the age of like 
his teenage years on making more and more money and he's super smart and he was very creative and he always combined it with his interests, but he was, he was able to monetize his interests every step of the way. And he became super, super wealthy. And I was never like that. Like I wanted to write novels. I got thrown out of, I was interested in computers, but then I got thrown out of graduate school. Then I wanted to make a TV show. So I worked at HBO, but that got me into the making websites. So I started a company, which I was no good at, but then <laughs> losing all this money, starting the company that convinced me to get interested in finance. So I started a hedge fund. I, then I started writing about finance for the street.com. Then I started writing about personal improvement because I failed so many times and kind of came out of it. And then I started doing other TV stuff and then this podcast. Now I run a bunch of businesses in almost every sector of the economy. So it's just, I'm just constantly doing things. doing things. And I feel like if I had stuck to one thing, maybe I'd be, have like $10 billion, who knows? Cause well, I, yeah, that I, book, The One Thing. I, I bought it and I never finished it because yeah. I got busy doing other things. Right, <laughs> and I think it's actually more fun and a more fulfilling life to not just do one yeah. thing. Now, that said, I think it could be very fulfilling to, to do one thing and be the best in the world at it because then you appreciate the subtleties of what it takes to be the best in the world at something. But I really enjoy, I, I fall in love with new things, like let's say every six months to a year, and I really want to get good at them. Not necessarily the best in the world, but good enough to appreciate the subtleties of the best. And it's so much fun, that steep part of the learning curve, like just climbing that on lots of different areas. And I feel if you do that, if you climb that steep learning curve on lots of different things, it puts you in the top, let's say 98 percentile of whatever area you, you become fascinated by. And it's just so much fun for me to learn these things. I remember one time I had on the podcast, Brian Koppelman who's written movies, uh, TV shows, everything. And uh, he's written some of my favorite movies and, and shows. And he said, don't write what you know, write what fascinates you. And I'm just constantly fascinated by different things. And I just love learning all these different things, whether it's playful things or monetary things or podcasting and how to communicate or comedy and how to make people laugh and, and, and yet communicate deeper tr hidden truths. And so, and all these things are interrelated, but, uh, you know, and they're all related to success. Like we talked about Silicon Valley, but also the success path of the creator of Silicon Valley. And, uh, they're all related to success and peak performance. So that's why I'm, I'm fascinated by all these different topics. And even though my show is about peak performance and success, I look at it not by, uh, from a business point of view, but from every area of life, from sports to artists, to writers, to business, to astronauts, to everything. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. I just recently started eating HelloFresh and I have to say it's been a really great decision for me and I'll tell you why. The recipe cards are so easy to follow and I am not a good cook, so I need those recipe cards. The food is pre-measured for you, so there's no waste, which is also really important for me, and everything tastes fresh. They call themselves a fork to feel good company too, because when you cook and eat delicious and healthy meals, you want to keep doing it again and again. Kind of like that fork to feel good. Plus, it's only $10 a meal. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. 
Don't order from HelloFresh if you want the Cheetos box. That's Cheetos Fresh. Different company completely. Customers can order three to five different meals per week designed for two or four people. New recipes are created every week. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat and simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. If you're a small business owner who struggles with tax stuff, you don't have to stress anymore because freaking out and burying your head in the sand will not solve your problems come tax time. But what will help you with paperwork and tax stuff and so on is bringing FreshBooks into your world. FreshBooks is the ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software that's made for people like you and me who can't stand doing their taxes. Seriously, it will transform the way you handle your taxes because FreshBooks keeps all of your cash flow details in one place so you know exactly what invoices you sent, who's paid you, and what your income is. And their mobile app allows you to take pictures of your receipts and organize them for later, which makes claiming expenses a total breeze. This is my Achilles heel is keeping track of all those receipts. So FreshBooks lets you do it with their mobile app. It's everything you need to stay completely zen come tax time and not panicked. So for a 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com forward slash James because they love this podcast so much and enter the code James in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com forward slash James and enter the code James in the how did you hear about us section. You mentioned Airbnb a little while ago, which um, is where you're living right now in various Airbnbs. What, you recently sold all your possessions. You've been nomading around the city with 15 things. Yeah. Uh, total. What? So this is the outfit so you the, see me in? This is like my outfit. So you're wearing, uh, who are you wearing, James? I'm, I'm, this is me. I'm like a- <laughs> Is that a, a gap uh, button down? Or? Uh, no, it's um, maybe a, a Brooks Brothers pants- which is relatively cheap. You get them on sale. They usually have like an end <laughs> of season You don't have to sale. justify it. And uh, all right, I won't. I, <laughs> I bought a top dollar. And uh, maybe like a kitten A shirt and then no belt and then sneakers and sock. Black sneakers so you can wear them in business functions or sneaker functions. I would and, have thought of you as more like a polka dot sock guy or like, you know, someone who has fun with their socks. No, I don't like to, I, I don't like it's to so have fun right with now. my clothing at all. I don't think, I think, people who kind of put billboards on themselves. I just don't like like the purple glasses <laughs> or whatever. I don't really, that's fine for them. But for myself, I don't I don't like it. It's Someone just, actually wanted to know about your wardrobe and how you- I keep um, it as, I, I'm, more, I'm dressed like a waiter all the time. So I'm here to, I'm here to serve. <laughs> Dixie, that was, uh, Dixie, you got your answer, your question answered. So, um, so, so I have two outfits and then I do laundry or I'll buy new outfits. And you know, my you do team, your own laundry or you send it out? No, I do it. I do it usually wherever I'm Airbnb. There's James a James has his machine. own laundry, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you just throw it in the washing machine. <laughs> it's boom, really easy. Hit a button, <laughs> throw them in the dryer, hit a button. But then you have to. And it's done. You, you don't have to I don't fold, fold them. No. You don't, right? Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> the, the the pharmacy. Um, like Walgreens, you can buy uh, this T-shirts from Walgreens. You could Walgreens buy Walgreens has T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, you could buy a pack of three for like fourteen dollars. T-shirts or something. Yeah, Hanes okay. T-shirts. This is a Hanes T-shirt. And, I know my uh, Walgreens. Well, why did you decide? What was the moment where you were like, "That's it, I'm selling everything"? Where were you? What happened? So, so 
I had a kind of a, like a semi, or no, not a semi, like a big emotional crisis about a year and a half ago. And at the same time, I was renting two different places, one in Manhattan and one in Cold Spring, New York, which is where my kids live, about 60 miles north. And um, both leases were up at the same time. And I had 40 years worth of baggage with me. You know, all the stuff you kind of, you don't realize like you don't realize how much stuff eventually you have. Like your parents pass away, so you get all this your stuff from there, and you have all the stuff you buy, like you you know all your books, all the stuff from your kid, all your kids' stuff, all your just just you know you have all this. You don't realize how much stuff you have, and this wasn't a minimalist decision. I call this uh, uh, this was a choicest decision, meaning. During the day, let's say you make a thousand choices about your life. I wanted to, some of those choices are choices you want to make. And some of those choices are like, ugh, I really don't want to make this choice, but I have to because it's part of my life. So an example is, do I really have to buy another couch because this couch is ruined? Or do I really have to buy another set of clothes? Or do I really have to go shopping? Or do I really have to renew this lease? And then think about that and think about this is where I want to stay for the next four years or whatever. So I decided I wanted to make more of my more a greater percentage of my day's choices about what I wanted to do instead of all these random admin sort of choices that I don't care about. So I decided I'm just going to I called up a friend of mine, Lisa, and I said to her, you go to both my places, take a truck and for everything I own, you Everything, a hundred percent. I don't. Uh, I don't want to see anything ever again. You can either donate everything. You can keep anything you want. Who's you can, Lisa? So she's just a friend of mine. Who's this lucky Lisa who got yeah. to basically inherit all your stuff? She she's helped me with a bunch of different things over over time, like over the past twenty years. And I I and you know I wanted her to be successful and have you know a little extra money. And I said you can either. Um, sell everything and keep the money, uh, and I, I and um, keep anything, donate anything, or give anything away to family members or whatever. And I'll pay you to do this, just to to throw everything out. Um, and for me, it was as if I was throwing everything out. Like I didn't care what happened. There so wasn't a, a single thing that you were like, I'm going to put this in my pocket. Well, she called me up in the middle, and I said it'll take you a weekend. <laughs> it actually took her about two weeks of like not. She rented like an 18 wheeler truck. She brought her like my daughter. Did you document this? This would have been great footage. I I, I did not. I should have. Uh, but I wanted to have nothing to do with it because I didn't want to be sentimental at all. Like like Marie Kondo has this book, The Magic Art of Tidying Up. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, put Kiss everything it, on the ground. Like goodbye. if you love it, keep it. <laughs> I don't love any objects. Like objects are dead. I don't love them. I don't love anything that's dead. And uh, 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 so everything, even like the Dr. McCoy doll from Star Trek that I've had since I was a little kid that was sitting right next to my computer. Uh, uh, Throw it out. I had like uh, paintings and artwork and, you know, artwork done by my kids. Uh, I told my kids a day in advance if there was anything they wanted, take it. They didn't want anything. And uh, the only time Lisa called me up was she said, I'm I'm about to throw out your diploma because there's, there's nothing. I'm not going to donate. I'm not going to keep it. I'm about to throw out your, your diploma. You worked really hard for it. It's nicely framed. You sure you want me to throw that out? And I said, 
turn on the fireplace. If there's a button, <laughs> you can turn it on and just burn it because no one has asked me about my diploma in 25 years. So just get rid of that. And she said, are you sure? And I said, Lisa, I told you not to call me during this entire process. Don't call me again. And she's told me afterwards, she threw out over a hundred garbage bags filled with stuff. At least. I thought I had maybe like 10 garbage bags and then some furniture. She said, no, it was a, a you, you, she said every, cause I had like a lot of rooms. I lived like in what had been a, in Cold Spring, I had lived in, I, I rented like what was used to be a hotel. And so there was all these like extra rooms and apartments and I had stuff like stuck in every drawer. And um, she just threw out so much. She brought her nephews, her kids, her husband, her cousins. And the end, my daughter called me up once and she was like, uh, dad, there's all, there's this entire family of people coming in the house and pulling things out. I and, didn't know I had a third cousin. And, and I'm like, Josie, just let it happen, but make sure, you know, if you want anything, you know, now's your chance. And so, and I just never saw any of those things again. And all I had with me was a travel bag like that that fits in your uh, above your seat in an airplane or so underneath your seat. So what did you end up keeping? I heard something like some $2 bills. So and- so I kept a plastic bag filled with about $2,002 bills and I I keep $2 bills because they're great to tip with. If you tip with $2 bills, nobody ever forgets you. Like you're the and guy. And they won't spend it. Yeah, they, they won't spend it. Rare. It's lucky. They are grateful forever to you and they always remember you. So I'll go in a restaurant and it's like, "Oh, the best table." And uh uh, uh, Hopefully you tip more than $2 when you go into a restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I'll, I'll, <laughs> but I'll, let's say it's a $50 tip. I'll count out like $25, $2 bills. Oh, wow. And they're amazed. And they're like, where do you get the $2 bills? And I said, I have a really good copy machine. So it's always like- it's fake. Yeah, it's always, <laughs> it's always like room for, for to make me the center of attention at yeah. these in these situations. And then um, I basically kept two or three outfits and a, a laptop computer and a phone. And that's about it. Nothing else. So, you know, your ID I, and obviously, yeah, buy a passport. Yeah. But I, I count that with my outfit. Like, you know, I don't count each individual dollar bill like as a different thing. So, uh, and then when <laughs> I need new things like a toothbrush or whatever, I just go to the pharmacy yeah. and, um, and then use it. And when I move Airbnbs, I usually throw everything out again and, uh, and restart. So, so, I'm, so I'm, I, I moved yesterday, for instance, from one place to another. And Airbnb is helping you out on this mission, right? Not necessarily, but but Airbnb heard about it because I was like their most aggressive user. And so I remember one time the owner of an Airbnb I was in calls me up and says, hey, right downstairs, the head of hospitality of of all of Airbnb is staying and he wants to meet you. No way. Yeah. So I said, sure, what a coincidence. And so he came upstairs, uh, he brought a bottle of wine because he's the head of hospitality for all Airbnb. I don't really drink, but he he brought the bottle of wine anyway. And... um, we had this, we, I turned on the tape, the, 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 you know, on the laptop, I recorded it as a podcast. We had a great podcast about Airbnb and I used my standard technique, which is I had written down for, as just practice a year earlier, 10 ideas, how Airbnb should be better. I pitched all of them to him. He said, this is great. Why don't you come and speak at the Airbnb open? So I went, I was like, the Airbnb open is this conference for like 15,000 homeowners or apartment owners who rent out their homes. And I was like the super guest. So I brought all my belongings on the stage and said, I just moved onto this stage. Let me tell you all what you're doing good and what you're doing bad. And I had a fun time, but they keep in touch now, the Airbnb guys, they're, they're, it's a good company. And uh, I just have, I just love it. I love staying in like, 
other people's homes. Other people's homes. Going through other people's bathrooms. All and- the time. I'm a total voyeur. <laughs> Do you go through their medicine cabinets? Of course, and- <laughs> yeah. And I go through everything and I learn about their lives. I Google them. I really could write a book about all the people. I've stayed in some really impressive people. I think that's your places. next book, right? Like I've stayed in the houses Sponsored of by Airbnb. International central bankers. I've stayed in movie stars' houses, famous singers' houses. And my kids will often decide on their custody situation depending on what Airbnb I'm staying at. Like I'll send them a link to where the Airbnb is and and the the map and the location and the rooms that they're going to be in. And they'll say, okay, I'll stay with you this week. And uh, it's just fun. But yeah, yesterday I I moved again, but the moving is easy. It's just, I, I pack up my one bag and I'm out. I wake up and within 15 minutes I've moved. Nobody has ever moved You probably saved yourself hundreds of hours a year. Being able to then take ping pong classes and stand up and right, all that right. stuff. Right, all of this stuff is about so I can now choose to do the things I really want to do as much as possible. I never have to think about maintaining my house. I never have to think about... What about dating, though? That's got to be weird when you're dating and... Oh, let, let me just say one thing about renting because I used to be all about renting versus owning. I'm not even about renting. The last time I rented in New York... I had to get five references, including a business reference and all sorts of references. I had to get a letter from my accountant because they didn't understand the multiple streams of income thing. I had to get a letter from my lawyer. I had saying I was a good guy. I don't know why they needed that. Where were you trying to live? The White House? Okay. uh, (laughs) There's a, 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 do you remember the pop singer Vanessa Carlton? Yes. So uh, A Thousand Miles or something like that is a big song. Yeah, so it was her apartment. I didn't even realize that. I sent the lease (laughs) to my business partner to check over and he said, do you know who you're renting from? And I'm like, oh, some woman. One hit wonder, Vanessa Carlton. And he said, check out this video on YouTube. It has 100 million views. And I'm like, oh, that's who I'm renting from. And then I... I have a horrible credit score because I've never owned, in my entire life, I've never owned a credit card. Now I have a debit card, but if you don't own a credit card, you have no credit score. So if you missed a mortgage payment 15 years ago, then that's the only thing on your credit (laughs) score. So I have this horrible credit score. And so every member, every person who lived in Vanessa's building had to meet me. And so the guy who casted uh, Seinfeld and many other famous shows. <laughs> he lived right above me and he had to meet me and everybody had to meet That's me. That's pretty that, cool. It, it was cool, but it was like almost a full-time job to rent one yeah. simple apartment. And then by the way, they threw me out of the apartment three or four months later. So cause because they wanted, they wanted to, they, they raised the price like 50% and they just found an excuse to get me out of there. And uh, <laughs> oh, they wanted the Airbnb. They're Airbnb like 50% more than I was paying. And uh, uh so, so that was that. That's the last time I rented. I've been Airbnb. So, is this it now? This is your final chapter in terms of how you're going to, you know, pursue your lifestyle. Is is to go from one apartment to the next? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it all. All and how I know does it, that impact your dating life? Oh, Let's be honest. All I know is today. So today, anything can happen tomorrow. If somebody says, "Oh, you can rent this place for a dollar a year," I'll certainly take that. And if it's a huge place and whatever, but I like to, I like to do new things. So. I think I would get bored in a place for after a few months. But um, do you think it's hard to find someone like a companion who is like minded and willing to yes. pursue this with you? It's been yeah. hard. And I think also it's hard to raise kids that way. But my kids have been great. I mean, they live with their mom, but they've also been great. Like wherever I'm Airbnb, they're very happy to move with me and be around in different places around the city or around the country when I have them. But um, so they've been really, my kids have been great about it. And they also know kind of, they just know that I'm a little 
you know, it's hard for me to stay in one place for better or for worse. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I need when I when I date, I am dating someone who's really accepting of moving around from place to place. And and I would say she calls it more minimalism than I do. I call it, like I said, I think a homeless person is minimalist. So I don't deign to call myself a minimalist, but uh, a, a homeless person is really a minimalist. I think it's almost an insult to homeless people to, to for anybody to, to write about minimalism. But I, she's, since meeting me, she's trimmed her, uh, possessions and clothes and in a way that I think is uh, women in general have more items than men. You know, they have cosmetics, they have dresses, they have this, they have that. Um, and uh, I'm very, I, you know, I'll work out in the exact same clothes I'm wearing right now. So I'll play tennis with my kids in these clothes and uh, I don't care. But But other people have gym clothes and clothes for this and clothes for that. I went to a, a fancy of, event at an embassy the other night and I was just wearing this and everybody else but was in a suit. But people just know to ex- expect that from you, right? And that's kind of that's kind of cool that or, you can- Or if they don't, then I'll just leave. Like, <laughs> I don't care. You have nothing to lose at this yeah. point, literally and figuratively. Right, and it's not just because of money. Like, if somebody doesn't like me for who I am, then I don't want to, I don't want to pretend. I don't mm. want to be something I'm not. And I don't like how, I don't like wearing a suit for his. I like wearing a tuxedo, actually. So I wish my one outfit was a tuxedo, but that's also, I don't feel- You can't really work out in a tuxedo. Yeah, and I feel like a tuxedo will <laughs> very quickly get beyond repair in, in dirtiness and ripped and, then and you, so on. Well, and then it also, you stick out a lot. Do you like being the center of attention? Not when I'm just like walking around or- But you, or, like, you like having a- a spotlight. Yeah I, yeah, I can't help it. That's why anybody likes to write or do a podcast. You sure. like it too. Sure. It's what you've had a TV show. You're the center of attention when you have when you have a CNBC show and you're walking around the street, people probably stop you and say, Farnoosh. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised. No, the thing I got more recognized for in my entire career was two things. Um, was my Yahoo series on Yahoo. I, I did a show for them every day. We would talk about, you know, because Yahoo gets like a billion people going every It used month. to, but when you were doing the show, yes. <clears throat> yes. And, it was in, very popular. In, it was much more popular than any TV station. Oh, it's so sad to see what's happening at Yahoo now. I feel like uh, when I was there, when my colleagues, we were all working, we felt we just were making such wonderful videos and content. And I felt like we just... We were given so much freedom. More people would recognize me from going on Yahoo shows than CNBC yeah. or, or Fox it's or It's where ABC. the eyeballs are. And, but, but now I feel media is so splintered and granular. There is no one place anymore. That's true. That even if you're on the Today Show, it doesn't matter. It's not. No, no, there, no. There's no, no yeah. one medium that's your thing. That that's anybody's thing. Like, know, like ratings have gone straight down, not for TV as a medium, but for any one show. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, Oprah's, I mean, I think maybe going on Ellen would be great. <laughs> but even that, like, okay, that's maybe a morning show 20 years ago would have gotten 30 million viewers. Yeah. Now it gets 2 million viewers. Yeah. Well, we had mentioned your kids and Kristen here has a question. Um, if you could not pass on any money to your children and all you could pass on was investment strategies, rules, a portfolio, what would it be? Okay, so that's a great question. First off, I want to address the money thing. Everybody's always afraid of two things, talking to their kids about money because, and, and maybe giving their kids money um, because maybe it'll take their motivation away. I, 
motivation happens whether or not they have money. I, I strongly believe. And if they didn't have, and if they didn't want to work as a lawyer or an accountant just because they had money, then fine. Don't work as a lawyer or an accountant. I hope, hopefully, you won't have a brain dead life. Uh, but I always am upfront with my kids about how much money I have, where it's coming from. If I'm broke or not, when I've been broke, I've been upfront with them. When I've had money, I've been upfront with them. How I make money, I take my kids to business meetings um, and my kids are CC'd on all emails involving my investments. And I'm just going to just blanket, give them my money. I don't care how old they are, how responsible they are, whatever. doesn't matter to me after I'm dead anyway. But if I didn't have anything to give them, which I may or may not, I'm, I'm known for going broke at odd moments. But if I didn't have anything to give them, the most important thing is to understand how to make money. And, and there's, there's the way to make money is by ownership. You can't make it from salary. You have to own something. Mm-hmm. So you have to either start a business or invest in a business. And if you invest in a business, the key to investing in business is to assume you're the dumbest person in the room or find the room where you're the dumbest person in the room and find the CEO who's smarter, find the co-investors who are smarter and just piggyback on them. So my most successful investments have always been where, oh, here's a CEO who's built and sold a similar business before. Of course, I'm going to back him. And meanwhile, here's, uh, I'm making this up, but here's Peter Thiel and Warren Buffett, and they're investing in the business. Am I going to argue with them? No, I'm going to invest alongside of them. And those businesses, 100% of the time, work out. And when I don't follow that strategy, 100% of the time, they fail. It's black and white. And you do this also with investing, I read on CNBC.com, where you said, like, more or less, Warren Buffett is like your free, your unpaid intern. Yeah, like, let's say, <laughs> let's just give it as an example. Right. Warren, let's say Warren Buffett buys Amazon at a thousand bucks a share. And I'll say, okay, that's interesting. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not. Now, let's say it goes down to 900 because stocks go up and they go down no matter what. And then I think to myself, oh my gosh, the best investor in the world who's worth $90 billion bought Amazon, you know, 12% higher than I can. He just gave me a 10% discount on his investment. And I can invest in Amazon now without paying Warren Buffett anything. Like he just did all the research and he's the smartest investor in the world. He did all the research. He knows, he called up Jeff Bezos and said, what's happening next? And he got all the inside information and got all the inside scoop and all the PhDs working for him said, Amazon's going to be here 10, 20 years from now. And this is what it's going to be doing. Okay. I don't know anything, but Warren Buffett did all the work for me. All he needs to do now is get me a cup of coffee and he really is my intern, but I'm but even better, he gave me a 10% discount on a billion dollar investment he made. Why wouldn't I invest in that? Why wouldn't anybody invest in that? So what I tend to do is I follow hedge funds and I use software to figure out which hedge funds or mutual funds seem to be the most creative at coming up with ideas first before all the other funds you know, the ones that Warren Buffett follows in. So who invested in Amazon before Warren Buffett invested? Follow the money. Follow follow the smart money because there's a lot of dumb, most money is dumb money. Find out who the smart money is, invest uh, with them. And, you know, I'll go wrong some of the time, but if you diversify and and do that 20 times, in general, you're going to be good. And I find with angel investing, uh, like investing in private companies, this works almost all the time. Like the strategy has basically been great for me. And now, and then the other thing I do is I own 
a, a business. So, so, yeah. so I own two businesses. One is my investments and the other is my own monetizing my own content like this podcast and, and so on. Intellectual yeah. property. And James and I are going to dish more about money and business and investing on my podcast. So make sure when you're done listening to this, that you head over to So Money and you hear more about James's thoughts on investing and where to put your money right now. I want to end a little bit talking about politics, if we okay. may. Do you like talking about politics? I, I do and I don't. And, I hate talking about politics. Well, I like asking the questions. I really don't like having opinions. Well, I have theories about how things should be run. I don't like talking about personalities because like, like think about all the presidents. 100% of all the presidents, 100% going back to George Washington, they all lied before they became president. They all said they're going to do X and then they did Y. And they all, I, I can't even think of who lived up to their promises uh, before they became president. And now you can argue, okay, well, Lincoln was a great president because he stopped slavery, uh, which is great. No one will argue that. But look, the United Kingdom or England stopped slavery 30 years earlier. So why did we even split off from England? We should have just stayed there. And the whole Revolutionary War killed off all these 18-year-old colonialists and we would have ended slavery in 1833. So I just think the whole institution of government, and I'm not being a libertarian, but I just think the whole thing is a farce. Mm. So, But any other political issues I'm happy to talk about. Did you vote? I, don't, I never vote. Because you who, never vote. Who am I going to vote for? Like James, you got to vote. I First off- It's your civil responsibility, just like jury duty. First off, <laughs> I agree with you that we all have a civil responsibility, but I I write a 300 articles a year. I do 100 podcasts a year. I give tons of talks. I'm able to help people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people so much more than my one little vote. So if people say, oh, you're a horrible person for not voting, <laughs> fine. Read all my stuff. You do All the stuff that I write and do for free, just read it and you could decide then if I'm a horrible person or not. But not whether I flipped a switch or not for people who are going to lie to me afterwards anyway. Is Trump good or bad? Probably he's crazy. Hillary probably broke the law. Uh, Bernie Sanders maybe would have been interesting. So you're not willing to say one is more destructive than another political candidate. I mean, people say, you know, uh, people who voted for Trump might argue, well, Hillary is a liar and a crook. And Trump and Hillary both would have been bad, but you have to look at what they they represent. Trump represents, uh, like Hillary represents uh, a system that has worked for 200 years, which is whether you like them or not, Washington, D.C., we're, we're like the longest running democracy or republic or whatever. And things are pretty good in America. Wealth has grown. The economy has grown and so on. And Trump represents, though, all like if you look at the electoral map, like all the counties between New York City and L.A. are red. And Trump represents these flyover states where there's actual significant poverty. Will he help that poverty? Absolutely not. No. He will definitely not. So the joke's on them. That's the sad thing, right? Is all the people who voted for him, majority of them are the ones that are going to be ignored in, in these four years. But Hillary, Hillary wouldn't have helped them anyway. Barack didn't help them. Mitt Romney wouldn't have helped them. W didn't help them. Bill Clinton didn't help them. I mean, the poverty rate is the same since 1972. Male incomes adjusted for inflammation, inflation. I said inflammation, but it's almost the same thing. <laughs> Male incomes are down since 1969. Incomes for, for college graduates ages 18 to 35 or young people ages 18, 35 is down every year adjusted for inflation since 1992. So nobody, has, and that's Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, 
Nobody has helped anybody. So we could talk about individual issues that will help people, but Congress doesn't care because they all have their own agendas. The presidents don't care. I don't know about the Supreme Court. The military doesn't care, even though I have a a huge respect for anybody who's going to join the military. Um, You know, all of these wars we fight, are they for oil? Are they for, you know, helping people? I have no clue. And I think it has to be acknowledged. What's that most- the silver lining? There has to be some. I mean, because if the way that you're talking right now, if I was to just like focus on that, I'd want to, I'd want to end it right now. You know, right. so the, the, it sounds the, like what's the point? Right. So the silver lining is that the status quo has main, has remained. So in general, we've been a pretty bad country for most of its existence. We had slavery. Women couldn't vote. We had, uh, you know, human rights issues, civil rights issues, abortion rights issues, gay rights issues. Really until, I mean, gay people couldn't get married until, what, a year ago or two years, you know, several years ago. So in general, we've been bad all along, but I think kind of the trend has been status quo and let's try to do our best. And let's let's also create these centers of dynamism like Silicon Valley has created more innovation than any other city in the world. So I think pri- privately, America has kind of gave a blank check to its citizens to strive to be the best we can be. And we've tried our best in general, mm-hmm. not always and not everybody, maybe even not most people, but I think the status quo has largely worked, even though I agree with the sentiment of drain the swamp too, because why should Congress raise all this money? You know, Congress basically controls the purse strings. Why should they raise all this money and put tens and tens or hundreds of billions or trillions into fighting these wars where we send these 18-year-old kids. Like, I have a daughter who's 18 and now women can fight in war. I'm never sending my kid to war to shoot other 18-year-olds. Like, even if you believe in a war, I would never, I'm hypocritical because I would never send my own 18-year-old daughter to a war. But you believe in war. I don't believe in war. Although if I were to, I would go in her place. So people say to me, um, oh, you have to believe in war because of the Civil War, World War II, all these things that are supposedly righteous wars. Fine. If you can convince me a war is righteous, then I'll go. I'm not going to send my 18-year-old. And I hope everybody in Congress goes, don't just send your children. As someone who just graduated high school, who hasn't even begun life yet, now we either send them to war or we control them with student loans, which is at $1.6 trillion, the highest ever. And so they can't do anything. They're, they're either going to get their legs shot off or they're going to shoot people and come back with PTSD or their hands are going to be tied around their back by so, student loans. So this might be my last question because my husband asked me this yesterday. And I, I think it's a really interesting question. He likes to ask me hypothetical questions. So I'm going to ask you the same question because I don't even know what my answer would be. But it kind of ties in this whole like era that we're in right now and the political turmoil and without getting too political, would you ever commit a crime to do what you thought was to expose something that you thought was necessary to expose? So for example, people right now, whether you work at a company, um, whether you uh, work at the IRS and you have access to Trump's tax returns or if, if you know your CEO is a crook, but it will require you committing a crime to expose that he is a crook. You know what I mean? Like stealing his emails Like stealing or his emails or breaking into his house. How far would you go for justice? Well, first off, that's such an interesting question, actually, because, you know, I've run a hedge fund. I've been exposed to everything on Wall Street where I would say 99% of it is either gray area or criminal. 
I've seen a lot of politics. I would say, again, maybe 90% is gray area or criminal. I mean, we see it with both, with every campaign we ever look at. One side says the other broke the law, and usually they're both right. And, uh, you know, and then there's exposed tapes or whatever that show both sides were right. And uh, I don't know, unless it was a crime that was really, like, hurting people, um, you know, like, I'm not so sure Hillary having, like, a storage disk of her emails in her pocket while she walks home. I'm not (laughs) so sure that's hurting anybody. And also, by the way, Trump talking to a Russian official about the election. Whether or not that happened, we don't really know. But I'm not even even you know Alan, Democrats like Alan Dershowitz and Geraldo Rivera of all people, you know, known liberal Democrats have said that's not really a crime. Like, what what's the actual crime that he's going to be prosecuted on? It's not a crime, and and it's the same thing for Hillary. What's the actual crime that she did? Where did she hurt people? Same thing with some gray areas on Wall Street, like insider trading. They are officially crimes, but it's are they victimless? We don't really know. I will tell you, though, I won't commit any crime. My business partner and I, we ran a hedge fund, and we saw all the other, our competitors and peers, they all broke the law. They paid fines. They went to jail. And, you know, we would joke around. We made no money doing it because we were the one fund <laughs> that didn't, we were so straight-laced. Everyone was lying all the time and we couldn't compete with them. They were saying, oh, I I, I went to Bernie Madoff and I said, will you invest you money in me? You went to Bernie Madoff? Yeah. I you would, met Bernie Madoff? Yeah, yeah. I went to Bernie Madoff. He gave me the tour of, you know, the facility. He didn't show you that was it the 17th floor? <laughs> no, I was on the floor above. <laughs> so so he said to me, and and we, we hung out for like uh, an hour or two and he was great. Like I, I he's a, such a nice, charismatic guy, actually. You gotta be to get all, those, all that money yeah, from everybody. Yeah, $60 billion dollars. And um, I said to him finally, hey, I'm running a fund of hedge funds. Will you invest some money with me? Like you have all this extra money in your fund. You can't. Wait, how did you first get invited to his office? Um, One of his traders who was working on the legit side, the market making side, that was the 18th floor. uh, One of my neighbors said, why don't you come with me? Bernie wants to meet you because I was writing for the Financial Times. He read my column and you can hang out with him. You'll really like him. He's wow. And my friend said he's like a father figure to me. And so I went and I met him. We spent a lot of time together. We got along really well. And I said, can you please, in, here's my strategy. Why don't you invest some money for, to, with me? It's diversification for you, for your, for your massive hedge fund. And he said, James, you know, you're great. It seems like you're, you'd fit into the culture here really well. I'm not sure now in retrospect what that means. Um, <laughs> he said, you can, have a, you can have a job here anytime you want, but I can't invest money with you because I don't know where you're investing. And, and you could be investing anywhere and there's no way for me to track that. And the last thing I need is to see the name Bernard Madoff Securities LLC on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And with that- well, and and And- I was depressed. I left his office. It was the last thing he ever saw, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, 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 I was depressed. I was leaving his office, walking down the steps of, it's called, it's called the Lipstick Building on, on 53rd and um, uh, Lexington. And uh, I was depressed and, and I was making some phone calls to other hedge fund managers like, oh, how can I compete? I was, 
he's returning like 15% a year. I, I can't ever compete with that. I'm going to get out of the hedge fund business. And I actually started the process of shutting my fund wow. down because of how am I going to compete with so Bernie Madoff? Bernie Madoff. And, and they- For all, your pivot. All these hedge funds I was calling were like, hey, can you get us in? Can, we want to invest in his fund. Can you get us in? And I'm like, nah, I don't, I'm never going to see him. I don't think I can get you in. They all deny making those, having those phone conversations with me now. They all say, oh, we knew he was a fraud all along. But that's just it. Nobody knows anything. If I leave you with anything, make sure you're hanging out with the smartest people in the room and do your own work, but you know, own things, but trust the people smarter than you because most people don't know anything. Ask the questions, offer up the ideas. And build your life. So more percentage of your decisions per day are choices you want to make rather than choices you have to make. Yeah. Yeah, who wants to decide on a couch? Yeah, or like- uh, <laughs> I hate deciding what to have for dinner. That's my, that's my pet peeve. Yeah, right or now. even like when you're pitching a TV show to CNBC not, or any network, how, that's very difficult, right? Like that was a long process for you. I, you know, I won't take credit for that. I didn't pitch the idea. TV is such a tough market, I think. People expect drama. They expect people throwing, like at, you know, prime time especially, there's an expectation that there's going to be- um, intensity, high stakes, drama. That's what people come, that's why people come back to a TV show sometimes late at night and this aired at 10 o'clock at night. So how would you kind of um, create So that was hard. Sometimes it didn't happen, you know, because the the profile was not that kind of person, you know? Why don't you do something crazy like throw up all over? <laughs> Trust me, I thought about that sometimes. You like, know. how can I plant like mini bombs around here? And- or, or like, were you, were you pregnant then? no. Because I was thinking maybe you could like break, <laughs> your water could break yeah. like right in the middle of the interview. That would be like a lot of drama. Yeah. The best episode I think was with Lior Cohen, who is, was the co-founder of Def Jam. Yeah, music guy. Music mogul. Such an interesting guy. I mean, like I could have spent a year with him. He's so fascinating. Such a charming man. No wonder he's so successful. But um, he had a pretty volatile personality. And, you know, one of his big responsibilities is making sure that his talent his, his stars, his his musicians get groomed and they understand the business and he's very much a mentor to them. And sometimes these guys, they're like these young kids off the block. They're very talented, but they don't know, they don't have discipline. They don't show up for things. So he would get really pissed off. And there was one moment where we caught him. He asked me to leave the room actually, because he wanted to really give his client some uh, uh, you know, did you get that on tape? Him so we kept <laughs> we kept rolling, and um, that was an awesome moment because he really I feel like he was extremely raw and real with his client. And um, do you think the most successful people like I'm very non confrontational? Like I really hate confrontation. Do you think the most successful people in the world are just indulge in confrontation? Like they love it? Oh, that's a good question. And then the, other, the flip side of that is, you know. As you get success, there are people kind of above you on the ladder of success and people below you. Do you think it's all about grooming and mentoring the people below you so that it's kind of this army that helps you move up? I will use John Paul DeJoria as an example. He was uh, one of the few billionaires that we profiled in the in this series. I didn't and, know he was a billionaire. Yeah, he's so worth he's two, like two billion. A, you know, a hair he owns salon guy. And Patron Tequila. Okay. People don't know that. And it's two very disparate companies He's at the helm of each of them, and each are worth billions, a billion dollars each. So he's a he's a very fascinating man. They don't make him like John Paul DeJoria anymore. And I will say that to answer your question, 
Um, he is not super confrontational, but you never want to cross him. You know, he, he what does what, that mean? It means that when he is angry and when he is upset, um, you will feel his wrath and it's not pretty. Like, what, know, why is it not pretty? So, what for example, like? there was an, um, an episode, I don't even know if this aired, but basically, he was promoting a new company that he's launching. And Forbes ran an article about it that had some misstatements that was factually incorrect in some places. He blew up. Like he kind of, he called the reporter and emailed the reporter, not called her, but emailed the reporter directly. And um, and that's scary. Like when, you know, a billionaire is like sending you an email, like, you know, saying like this article, because usually you go through your people, you know, he goes right to the source and he's going to, Make sure, and he didn't like throw chairs or anything, but it got pretty tense. He was like slamming his fist on the table, and you don't want to piss off someone like John Paul DeJoria because he's very powerful, and I think that he really expects a certain level of hard work and perfection from the people that work for him and are around him, and they they want to please him, and they know that he's ultimately a guy that will look out for them, but don't. You don't want to be in a room with him when he's giving you bad news because so, it's so, just going to make you feel really bad. So, so a couple questions there, but but also, so you're saying the people around him want to please him, but are they also their own people? Like they must be great to be sitting on top of operations for billion dollar companies. Yeah, they're very grateful. Um, you know, it's hard. When I was filming, it was kind of hard to get a real sense of who these people were because they knew the cameras were around. But I think that um, when I did confront one of his, like his second in command at uh, Paul Mitchell, I said to him, you know, you're very accommodating right now in this meeting and you're very like, you know, whatever you say, Mr. DeJoria, you know, but when you have bad news, when you didn't hit sales, when you have to fire someone, when you forgot to do something, do you tell him? And how do you tell him? He's like, yeah, I tell him and it's hard. And I try to keep those those um, op- meetings fewer and far in between, but um you know, it's my job. And I think he ultimately, if someone is a good leader, they will respect that, you know, that you came to them and admitted fault and you, you know, and it doesn't happen very often. It happens. We're human. But I think that uh, that's why he likes the second in command a lot because he knows that he will always have his back and he'll always be honest. And so do you see him mentoring <clears throat> his bench? The people um, love? Yeah. You know, his daughter is actually... Uh, his, He's very close to his family and his kids. One of his daughters is actually, I think, groom, getting groomed to become, to sort of take over the company eventually. And she's got a very high position there. Um, I don't know how much time he has to mentor. He's all over the place. He's flying here. He's going to this event. He's doing this. I always kind of see him at, I see him he's, in the street. I see him at events. Like I always see him around. He's a busy guy. And I, so I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, you know, what's funny about him is he doesn't have a computer. He has a flip phone. He doesn't have a cell phone. But um, it's, you know, TV is, you're in this now. And I wanted to bring this up. You know, you're in the midst of looking at some TV projects yeah. and pursuing them. And it's tough because it could take years. It could take two seconds, you know, depending on how quickly the network wants to move and the sponsors. I, so let's look at both of those extremes. I think if it's going to take years, do it yourself and then show what you have, put it on YouTube, invest a hundred dollars in creating some ratty set and do your own thing and get some people to help you. Have the social proof. Yeah. And then pitch it. If it's going to take two seconds, then okay, you've made an easy choice and that's good. That's true. Uh, If it's not easy, 
then figure out uh, some backdoor way to do it, do it that's fun for you rather than just catering to jumping through the hurdles that somebody else sets for you. Amen to that. James, was this fun for you? Oh, I no, had a this lot was of- so great. Can you come on again? Let's do this uh, regularly. Uh, let's thing. do this regularly because I'm sure as your life evolves, as you're doing new things, I want to maybe do this if we could like bring in some of your fun things that you're doing, like some some audio of your stand-up, some of your ping-pong match. I know it's a podcast, but I feel like this stuff is just too good to not be to track and and bring to your audience. Yeah, or I'm thinking of doing um more daily. You should be uh you should come on and we'll just talk issues and stuff daily. We'll just Yeah, we'll just, we'll just go while. through the news. What what papers do you read? Do you read any Oh, oh I don't read any newspaper. I mean not papers, but you I don't know. read I don't I don't read anything written in the last uh unless there are podcast guests. I don't read Twitter. anything. No, I don't read any No tw- Twitter. I don't use my Twitter feed. I don't use my Facebook feed. I don't use my Instagram feed unless I'm just distributing my own material. Um, like an article I wrote, news is just the rough draft of history. So I'd rather read something t- ten year, you know, written fifty years ago or twenty years ago. I want to read quality writing to inspire my writing, or I want to read quality stuff that's been analyzed for a really long time and we see the results. Rather than if I just read like, yeah, but news is context to stay no, informed and what? have what? an informed opinion about what. About, what, what what did you read today in the news that gives you an informed opinion that, that changes your mind about something? Hmm, climate change. You know, my husband and I are thinking maybe we don't live in New York City. If this Paris treaty doesn't go through, you know, then— Because is New York suddenly going to get more polluted? Like the, the mark— No, but the, the sea levels are rising, James. <laughs> I live okay. in Brooklyn, and it's getting scary. Right, so I wouldn't—I already know I'm not going to own in New York because maybe New York's— Maybe there's a five, <laughs> maybe there's a five percent chance New York City goes underwater. I don't know. I don't believe all the. I believe there is some change happening in the climate. Whether it's you know it, it, you could just see you know every year is a little different since I was a kid. But okay, let's say there's a five percent chance New York goes underwater. Don't buy a house in New York. The decision made. Well, I, don't need, yeah. I don't need to so read there, some new that's New York the dots Post that headline. I'm connecting with news. There, there won't be like suddenly a headline in the New York Post. New York City goes underwater tomorrow. Get out. <laughs> like, that's going to happen over a long time. Although, do you know, the most read article in the New Yorker last year was this, like, 50-page article about, well, online art, online pages, was about climate change in the Pacific Northwest and how those towns in Seattle, near Seattle, Washington, Portland are making adjustments now because they really feel like they're going to that those that part of the country they think is going to be underwater or will f- like break off or there'll be some tsunami I think that's going to be Yeah so so the writer that yeah. actually used to be a tenant of mine uh of course. on a property that I that I owned like 15 years ago uh I think won the Pulitzer Prize that article yeah. and um I have not read it I would rather read, like, Bill Gates has recommended a bunch of books about climate change. Those are the books I'll read, where it's like, yeah. okay, somebody who's who's a scientist who really studies all this stuff, who makes predictions. By the way, there's other issues. Uh, isn't uh, Yellowstone National Park one big volcano that's 10,000 <laughs> years late on exploding on their average cycle? So there's nature problems all over the place. I honestly hope I live near a volcano and I die instantly when the worst <laughs> happens. So I should move there and get out of New York where you're you're worried about owning a place where a millimeter a year the water's <laughs> going to rise up. Okay, when it's when the when it's gone up maybe 10 more millimeters then you should move, but I but okay. there's no problem tomorrow. 
I'll just call you from, I'll just text you from now on about what my next move should be. All right. Well, we could talk about, I'll be happy to read the paper with you <laughs> if we do a regular podcast. I would love to. We'll like, do a handshake on it. Yeah. We're shaking we'll do, hands, everybody. We'll do, for, for, for someone who you read the newspaper, I don't. We'll spread out a bunch of newspapers <laughs> and it's like James and Farnoosh read the news. It'll be like a half hour podcast. We'll do it within this, a sub podcast of this one. And Can we do it while driving cars? Like we need a gimmick, right? We need like to be in a coffee shop. Like Seinfeld drives the fancy cars at first and then they go to a okay, coffee shop. We could do that. Like J- James and Farnoosh read the news. We could do news. live Facebook. James and Farnoosh read the news while eating donuts. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> no, we'll we do that. No, we can't eat donuts. We're going to like, we're gonna die, you know, in a year if we just eat donuts. We have to keep it healthy. All right, uh, How about um, bulletproof James coffee? A, James of Harnoosh, bulletproof their way <laughs> through the by news bulletproof today. Coffee. Yeah, I'll call. We'll get sponsored Let's by get bulletproof Dave. coffee. On it, I'm on it. We are just movers and shakers, and it'll be back in action. We've been doing videos since 2006. And we'll cold call people. We've been in the <gasps> trenches together since 2006. <laughs> I'd be happy to do another show with you. Oh, that would be so much fun. I've just been, my my cheeks hurt from all the smiling and laughing I've done. And P.S., James and I are doing another round of Q&A on my podcast, So Money. So join us there as more well. more finance-oriented. Yeah, I can't finance, wait. Yeah, finance, business, money, all that fun stuff. Thank you so much, James. Thank you, Furnish. So exciting. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.